everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes. And today, joined by a special guest. You have heard him on the podcast before. We're really glad to have him back, Dr. Cliff Sanders. Cliff Sanders is the director, the founding director of the School of Wesleyan Studies, which you can find at wesleyanstudies.org. And it is housed at Crossings Community Church in Oklahoma City. He is a mentor, a friend, a person I've looked up to in ministry for a long time. And he is also an expert in the topic that we're going to cover in this <laughs> mini series, which is the Great Awakening. And today, specifically, the life of John Wesley. So, Cliff, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'll uh, look forward to hearing you guys whenever uh, I have the opportunity. And being on here is a real privilege. So, thanks. Well, we want to talk about a, a topic that might seem a little bit foreign to most listeners. When you say the Great Awakening, most people either harken back to their high school English class reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God or Cotton Mather, or um, they think of some distant time in American history. And I, I want to visit the Great Awakening as a time that is extremely instructive for the time that we're in in America today. And here's what I mean. In the 1730s up till about 1740 is when we consider the time of the first Great Awakening. And this was a time before the American Revolution. These were British colonies in America. This was uh, largely a group of people that had in, been influenced by the Puritans. But they were in a waning period of spiritual vibrancy. In fact, in the colonies at the time, places that had started out as a colony that was built to be a city on a hill or a place where you had to go to church or places where everybody that you knew was a Christian, the spiritual life of, of the people and of the colonies was, was actually fading pretty quickly. Uh, you had basically churches that were preaching a gospel that was popular. People would go and hear it, but their lives were not changed. You had the difference between the church and the world beginning to vanish. You had grandparents and parents who were not seeing their spiritual life and their faith passed down to their kids and their grandkids. And so what, what was interesting is we think of the Great Awakening as a Christian golden era in the United States. But if you were living through it, it would feel almost like a slow and dying flame that was all of a sudden instigated back up into a roaring bonfire. And the thing I think is really powerful for today is the revival that took place in the Great Awakening didn't happen, uh, by and large, among non-Christian pagan people, although there were some great missionary efforts. It happened among people who were usually going to church, who were familiar with Christianity, but they didn't actually know God. So the more we talk about this, the more we're going to see is the revival uh, that happened then and all throughout history typically happens among God's people first. And they're the ones whose eyes are open. They're the ones whose hearts are enlivened. They're the ones who come back to God. And all of a sudden, the aftermath is that many, many, many more people come to know Christ. And I wonder if we're not entering a period now where the greatest revival we need is in the church. And then we'll see revival happen outside the church in our world. So there's a, a trio of people we're going to look at. And we're going to do a podcast episode on each. We're going to start with John Wesley. We're going to move to George Whitfield, And then we're going to do... Jonathan Edwards uh, at the end. So Cliff, not just because you're the founder of the School of Wesleyan Studies, but because you really are a student and a scholar of John Wesley, 
I wanted you to walk us through a little bit of his life, give us a setting for who he is, what what was the world that he was walking around in, and maybe lead up to some of the role he played in the Great Awakening. Well, yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, Wesley grew up in a pastor's home. I uh, grew up in a church from the Church of England. And there are several formative events that happened in his life. Uh, he was very um, directed by his parents, his mother particularly, into um, holy practices, you might call. Uh, but he does record that when he went to college, that he pretty much did not have much of an interest in his uh, religious training, but then came back around a bit uh, to it when he was at Christ Church College there at Oxford. Um, his his life is is a really um, an interesting journey to awakening, uh, in that he was constantly seeking what he called assurance. Uh, one of the formative things that happened to him in his life when his father was dying, Samuel, uh, his father was kept mumbling to him, the inward witness, the inward witness. That is the strongest evidence of being a child of God. Well, Wesley, just uh, Char John just at that point did not have that, what he called inward witness. And so his life is a series of trying to do better, be disciplined. Um, use the means of grace, uh, dedicate his life to God as best he knew how. Um, after reading Jeremy Taylor's book, Holy Living and Holy Dying, he said he dedicated himself to give his life fully to God. But he was never, what we talk about here is, he, he never really had a spiritual awakening. It was more duty. It was more convinced of his his obligation or his responsibility to God, uh, but that that was not uh, awakening his heart. It was more of his uh, responsibility to God. So um, his is quite a journey from growing up in a Christian home, going to uh, Oxford and becoming a priest uh, in the Anglican Church, as you know, uh, then going on a mission trip to Georgia, um, and he writes in his journal. On his way to Georgia, he said uh, he was going to convert uh, those uh, who were in America, but he said, who will convert me? Mm -hmm. uh, he still bore in his soul mm -hmm. a sense of distance from God. And so uh, he goes to Georgia and uh, attempts to sort of, uh, if you will, learn what it means to be a Christian. He writes in his journal again that he thought maybe if he went to Georgia, on the frontier, that he would find primitive Christianity for his own life. Hmm. Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about John Wesley's story, and as you've told it leading up to it, it's the perfect little microcosm of what revival really is. You have a person who is born in a, a very high Christian culture. It was the norm. I mean, in college, he's in a group called the Holy Club. I mean, you've got that going on at Oxford, you have, uh, like I said, the Puritans uh, in the generation before, but then you have this person who has no internal assurance of salvation, who essentially is going through the motions. And in a way, revival is begins with people who are going through the motions. Revival begins with people who are aware of God, they are adjacent to God in some way, 
but they don't really know God. I, I was uh, reading through John Stott's commentary on Galatians because Galatians, in in one way, is is a book about this kind of thing. It's a book about good people, people who are trying to earn God's approval. And uh, he takes the example of Wesley, and he quotes Wesley looking back. This is after his true conversion, but he looks back and he says, at the time, I had even then the faith of a servant, but not the faith of a son. And Stott adds, Christianity is a religion of sons, not of slaves. And I thought, given what Paul talks about in Galatians 4, that fits perfectly. People who are trying to earn, people who are trying to do what they think God wants, but all on their own power. And certainly in, in different shades, that was, that was Wesley. What, what were the things that led to change in his life? Well, you know, Wesley, uh, in going to Georgia, he had been on the ship with a group of Moravians, uh, this German a group of people who had left and had begun uh, ministry. By the way, the Moravians are still around today they helped uh, settle some of America, had a great uh, missionary influence around the world, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. They have a college in North Carolina still. These Moravians uh, that he met on the ship to Georgia had such composure whenever they were going through a storm. He was so affected by them because he asked them, do your people not fear death? And they said, no, we don't fear death, which he did. He was scared to death. Uh, on that trip. So he meets these uh, Moravians, both on the ship. He meets uh, their bishop in Georgia. Georgia is a disaster for him. He's trying to bring about high church Anglican uh, religion to a bunch of people on the frontier, and they don't like it. And he leaves just basically broken uh, because of his experience. But meeting the Moravians there he comes, gets back to London and meets another Moravian named Peter Bowler, who uh, began to talk to him about being made right with God by faith. Uh, and, and Bowler tells him that he can be made right with God by faith, and Wesley has a hard time with it. In fact, there's an interesting uh, experience that um, Charles was actually teaching Bowler some language skills. And Bowler asked Charles if he had any hope of uh, salvation. He writes this now back to John. He's telling the story that uh, Bowler had asked him, did he? Did Charles have any hope of salvation uh, to go to heaven? And and uh, uh, he, Bowler says that to me. And so Charles says back to him, well, I trust in my endeavors. Mm. And Bowler just shakes his head and walks off. Charles writes John this letter and says he believes that he believes that Bowler is a very unkind man because he would deprive me of my endeavors. So th this gives you a real insight into the way Charles and John are are thinking about salvation, its works, its effort. So meeting the Moravians was the real bridge after the failure in Georgia. John seems to be just at a point where he's just absolutely distraught. And Peter Bowler helps him to understand it's by faith and faith alone. You know, they uh, they came out of the Anglican Church at the time that was stuck in a more ritualistic, 
performance-based salvation. And I think I'm sure that's what, you know, that's where they grew up and that stuck with them. I think today though, I think we slip into that from the other direction. You probably heard the term moralistic therapeutic deism, which, you know, for us is a sliding away from salvation by faith and an imperceptible reliance on being a good person. And as Cole opened this with, I do think there are parallels. Maybe we didn't get there from the same direction, but there are some parallels with today. But Cliff, as I think about it, he went to Georgia and, as you said, to to hopefully discover a pure, more primitive Christianity. But he failed. He didn't find it there. But having met the Moravians seems to have been perhaps God's purpose in that trip, because was it the next year after he got back? I think 1738 sticks in my mind that uh, the result of this was an awakening for him. Oh, yeah. He gets back in 1737. And then in the in that time, he starts spending some time with the Moravians. Uh, actually, where he has his experience of of his heart strangely warm at on Aldersgate Street, it is the, called the Fetter Lane Society. That is really a Moravian society where he goes and hears the preface to the book of Romans by Martin Luther. Uh, so, yes, this this, if you will inter um, connection between the Moravians absolutely is critical. And without it, you would wonder if he would have ever come to that uh, peace of heart and mind because Bowler kept saying to him, preach faith until you have it. And when you have it, you'll preach it. And so Bowler just continues to, interesting here, Wesley begins to try this before uh, May 24, 1738. He, he begins to start preaching in the prisons where they often went. You know, he, here again was a person who was very serious about their relationship with God, but no real connection. And he, uh, I always find it for me interesting uh, when he preached at Newgate Prison different times, he preached finally what Bowler told him that you can be made right with God by faith instantaneously. The first convert that ever responded to him who was had a death sentence was named Clifford. <laughs> and it was the first convert that Wesley Aaron. I take great pleasure in that with my name being Clifford because he was beginning to say, okay, maybe Bowler's right. Maybe it is by faith. And this, it, and it was an awakening to he and Charles. No question uh, that this was a, a sovereign awakening. Yeah, tell us about his conversion then, or his true conversion in 1738. Yeah, you know, he he writes in his journal that uh, on May the 24th, he'd been invited about to go to this uh, society meeting, which which is interesting because there really was a lot of these societies that had been an attempt to try to awaken the church. There was a Society for the Recovery of Manners that Wilberforce was involved in. There was a Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Many of these people began to see that the church was dead and needed to be enlivened. So Wesley's going to go to this society meeting. It's May 24, 1738. And he writes in his journal that he went really very reluctantly. Uh, But he had been to this point of just absolute dejection. So he goes there and 
in that society meeting about a quarter of nine, he writes, someone was reading the preface to the book of Galatians by Martin Luther. And Wesley said, as he heard it, he said his heart was strangely warm that he believed that Christ died for me. And it became very personal to him now. And he began uh, to understand that Christ loved him, not just the world. And so that's a very critical piece where he believes he comes from the faith of, as you said, Cole, from the servant to the faith of a of a son. And uh, he writes in his journal, he went home rejoicing. He said the next few days, the devil buffeted him fiercely, uh, but God would, would reign supreme by giving him that assurance uh, that Christ died for him. So it's pretty, it's kind of the big watermark that his life was changed completely. It, it's not faith in Christ to say Christ died. That is a historical fact, or that Christ rose, or that he ascended. Faith is Christ died for me. Now, all of a sudden, that's really different. And there's a lot of people walking around in Wesley's day that believe Christ lived, died, things the creeds say, but it's that extra two words that signify the entire change of the heart. Christ died for me. Yeah, and I would emphasize too, Cole, that when he had this experience, it wasn't charismatic the way we understand it today. And it wasn't mystical. It simply was engaging his affections. I love that old word, the his heart in with his beliefs. And it seems to me that's a theme as he goes on from there, Cliff, is he doesn't say it's all about the heart. It's no longer about holiness or uh, you know, you're living out your faith, but he puts the two together. And I guess what I, as a lay person, what I most know about Wesley is he preached a heart religion. And it, it sounds like that comes from this moment, putting your beliefs and your uh, affections together. Yeah, I, I, I think he, again, uh, he was a very serious man, very serious person. But this understanding of a, a change of heart, and it isn't just that he got to, he was a pretty good person morally. Uh, it wasn't that he had some huge moral revolution. It it was his heart was changed in its affections. Like you said, Terry, that this, I love that. That's Edward's great, you know, religious affections. By the way, he 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 spoke about Edwards lovingly and and appreciatively about that, that that it was this affection. But I think it comes back to this notion, and he made this very strong statement over and over again when he said that true Christian living, he called it holiness. He said, true holiness is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you cannot love God until you're convinced he loves you. That's Wesley's story. Mm -hmm. he, he, he could not love God until he realized. And I think that's just 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. And that's the genius, in my opinion, of what I would call historic Orthodox Christianity. I just think Wesley's in line with that, that Historic Orthodox Christianity has always taught that God's love is the motivation and the strength 
uh, of our love for God. It's not, we don't love because we're good people. We don't love because we're great, you know, at anything. We we love because he first loved us. I just remember reading that in seminary, and it, and it in many ways for me as an ordained minister, as having pastored churches, it clicked in me in a way that I thought, that's it right there. We cannot love God until we're convinced he loves us. And for some reason, in some way, uh, God convinced him on May 24th, 1738. Now, given his prodigious life before then, uh, it seems like he came to Christ kind of late in life, but he's actually got 50 years after this of faithful ministry. So he has been uh, doing missionary work. He's been preaching, but now he has this true conversion. And if anything, it multiplies what he's doing and the results that he's seeing. What does the next 50 years of his life look like? Oh my, you know, it's, it's, I think he would say in, in his journal at times, it was spreading the good tidings of salvation. It, it was declaring the good tidings. Yeah. Well, one thing that, uh, I, I want to check with you is it to my recollection, Cliff, he was a, an ordained Anglican, but I don't believe he ever actually left the Anglican church to my knowledge. However, he left the practices of the Anglican church. And so instead of having church service in a building every Sunday and reading his sermons, he went out the next 50 years is kind of, a, he's known as an itinerant preacher uh, one of the first people to actually preach, this sounds crazy to us, but it was revolutionary at the time to preach outside a church building. I mean, it's almost like a switch got flipped and he went out and maybe uh, yeah. that's the, kind of the theme of the next 50 years of his life is outside the church building. Yeah, you know, he he sort of had the Church of England over a barrel. He was an ordained priest and a teaching fellow at Lincoln College. So he had no diocese, but he was considered a priest. And so he went about in all these different dioceses and basically said, the world is my parish, <laughs> mm. which people didn't appreciate in those parishes. But you're right, Terry, that he then... He never left the Anglican Church. He never rejected it. He always encouraged the people he called, uh, I love what Heinzen Ryder says, the people called Methodists, to always go uh, to church to participate in the sacrament. But he found that he was barred from the churches. They wouldn't let him preach in the churches. So he decided to, under Whitfield's uh, encouragement to preach in the fields. But you're right. He 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 was a ordained Anglican priest till the day he died, and because he had been a teaching fellow, he didn't really have a parish, but he could preach about anywhere he wanted to. And uh, of course, Whitfield is strongly influential uh, in that particular area. But yeah, so he's preaching in the fields, on the streets, on corners, in houses, um, uh, anywhere uh, they will listen to the glad tidings. But his heart had been so released, I think, uh, by the freedom of Christ and the gospel. Uh, he, he That was his life's work from then on 
with joy, now not the drudgery of discipline and the drudgery of endeavors, but with a heart really freed and released by the love of God. If people think about Wesley today, a lot of times they think of Methodism and the Methodist Church, uh, which comes from these Methodist societies that you've mentioned. What, what what were the Methodist societies and what was Wesley trying to do? Well, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of us because we talk about Whitfield, but Whitfield asked Wesley to come to Bristol to preach and to organize the people that were responding because the Church of England had no mechanism now to deal with them. So when Wesley comes to Bristol and starts preaching, he really takes a model, again, of all these other societies around England and begins to organize people in what they called a society, which would be a large group of people in that area. Then they would go to a class, which would be a smaller group, and then a band. Uh, I, I've said, I've, I've probably read this somewhere, but I say that what Whitfield knew is that even though Whitfield was a better preacher than Wesley, Wesley could out-organize the devil. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was going to bring organization to the plate. And so uh, some have suggested, it, it even goes back to Oxford, whenever he and Charles, Charles actually started it when this holy club started. Mm-hmm. Uh where they got together to read scripture and take the sacrament. And then they would also do evangelism and outreach that that holy club that started in Oxford, by the way, they didn't give themselves that name. Other people gave them that name in derision. This was not a compliment. Um, And George Whitfield was part of that, by the way, Uh, Charles had invited him. So Wesley then, as he preaches and as the revival begins to take hold, he realizes people have got to be nurtured and developed. And so they begin these uh, smaller societies and groups for people to be nurtured and strengthened. And this becomes part of the building campaign that they have. They build a a place called the New Room in Bristol and uh, begin that that kind of process of of making sure to, to help people grow once they come to this enlivened new faith from being hearing hearing it on their lunch hour when they're outside the mines they're in Kingswood the miners are listening to Wesley and Whitfield preach and now you know th- what are we going to do with these people how can we help them grow so that became part of the genius of that so you know I guess that's where the name Methodists come from is the methods that they used in these if I remember right, a band was what dozen people right around there, kind of what we would today call a small group. But it's a pretty committed small group. They they really had methods, and it wasn't to earn salvation, obviously, based on everything we've said, but it was to become holy. Uh, as a result of their salvation, they were holding each other accountable and encouraging and praying for each other to become holy. And this method that they had gave them their name, didn't it? Oh, oh, I think so. Yeah, that, that's what they were called because they're methodologies. But that that's right, Terry, that, that these groups uh, became what uh, David Watts, or not uh, David, um, Thomas Watson has said, 
uh, is the real genius of the Wesleyan revival and awakening that put people together to support one another and encourage one another. And I'm sorry, Kevin Watson, uh, hmm. to put those uh, things together. And so they, they, they methodically did it uh, for the, for throughout the United Kingdom. You know, I know there's uh, several people I've read recently, and I know even at our church, there's some interest in recovering those methods. Uh, because today, I guess we'd probably call that discipleship, a discipleship model. And it seems to me, and I don't know what you guys think about this, but recovering that system or that method of discipleship and perhaps applying it today, you know, the bands and the societies and some of the methods that they use, some of the accountability that they used. I, I'm pretty favorably disposed towards that uh, in terms of being a part of a, an awakening today and calling people back to a more heartfelt, holy religion. Well, you know, if 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 there is any value in that, I think it it is seen in two things. One is Wesley uh, records in his journal. There was an area called Pembrokeshire, and he records there. He said, how much preaching has occurred in Pembrokeshire and that of an apostle? In other words, this place has had some great preaching. But he said, how much preaching has occurred here at Pembrokeshire and that of an apostle? But no joining together in societies or groups. And he says this. So the result is that nine out of the 10 who were awakened are more asleep than ever. Hmm. That he saw that preaching by itself without the bringing together would uh, would just absolutely, the people that were awakened, he said, now they're more asleep than ever. Uh, and so his methodical thinking through how do people grow spiritually? over a long period of time, not just they're awakened. Mm -hmm. um, and I read also, you know, Whitfield, great preacher, wonderful person, uh, and and John Wesley's dear, dear friend. But it's recorded that when Whitfield died, that he made the comment that he felt that his movement was a rope of sand. He said, because I did not do what Mr. Wesley did of joining those who are awakened together in bands and groups together. And so it it really was the genius of that awakening. I think the more you look at revivals, this is a pretty common theme, whether it's from the Reformation, where you see Martin Luther obviously writing and speaking and others. It's actually when people get together and live life together, they're formed, they're nurtured, is the word that you use, discipled together in churches and in societies and in groups that you see long-lasting change. Same thing with the Great Awakening. And then uh, even up to the Billy Graham Crusades, uh, revivals, you see him partnering with Dawson Trotman and the Navigators doing discipleship. You see them reaching out to churches and making sure that in a city they have church partnerships. And so you have on the one hand, this kind of preaching and revival in an instant, people are truly converted. And then you have the rest of their life in this discipleship and growth. And you really can't have a lasting revival without both of these together. And I think that's what 
probably the the more prudent people looking at the Asbury revival that just happened are, are very excited about it, really uh, looking for God to do something, but also waiting to see, okay, what are the results? You know, is this is this going to be lasting? Is this going to be something that goes for the long term? And if you look through history, all of the big revivals have this kind of role that Wesley played in putting people together, helping them to live a godly life, helping them to come back down from the spiritual mountaintop and and live a life for God in their every day, and not just in uh, the meeting or in uh, a field somewhere listening to a preacher or in a worship set of some kind. It's actually returning to life and having God fill every part of your life. That's got to be there for a successful revival. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, Cole. I think, and that's a good lesson for today as well, because we have a lot of great preachers in America, around the world today, speaking to a lot of people. And I think most megachurches, for example, understand this and are trying with varying degrees of success to make a big church small really capturing this idea of you've got to get small groups of people together who are committed to walk out their faith together in in a discipleship and and again i think they with varying degrees of success but i would agree that's one of the reasons for this success that's why i think john wesley isn't the only figure in the great awakening but i wonder without john wesley would we be talking about this hmm yeah i I, I think both of you guys are right. And from the standpoint, this is, you know, my opinion, and it doesn't necessarily have to have all the weight of it. But I think this is where the American church, with we're thankful for technology and online services and things like that. But I think that's where the American church is really struggling to say, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. um, how are you going to grow if you're just sitting in front of the screen? How are how can you how can you be formed and developed in your spiritual formation by just watching someone else or listening to something without this? I would take it to the point of this notion of it that minute that ministry and Christian growth is incarnational in nature. It, it must have an embodiment element of how people must be together, to grow together, to learn together, to encourage one another. And I think, you know, I, I want to use technology. I'm thankful for all the online thing that we can do that matter. But people's spiritual life is going to be dependent on their ability to be involved in that kind of uh, uh, experience of relationship. Yeah, I know that at Crossings, there's, with our online, one of the things we emphasize on a regular basis, and again, I don't know how effective this is, but I really appreciate that that we're doing it, is to encourage people around the, uh, the country who can't come physically there, but they do like the preaching and that sort of thing. This can't be your only interaction. You need to get involved in a local church, which is exactly what Wesley was doing. He said, yes, this is wonderful, but you also need to get connected to a local church. Yeah, to go back to Galatians 4 for a minute, where we started with the slave versus son. You know, at the end of that chapter, Paul says that he's longing for people to have Christ formed in them. The, the, hmm. the desire was not just for people to make a profession of faith or pray a prayer, although those things can be a great start. The goal really is to be formed into the image of Christ. And Cliff, one of the things I've heard you teach on a lot, and I think one of the 
major ways to summarize what it was that Wesley was really about is this concept of holy love, both the holy love of God and then the love that translates into holiness among God's people. Maybe say a bit about the impact of that idea, both for Wesley and for us today as we look at his legacy. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's the wheelhouse for him. Um, this idea of holy love, that it is not just something reduced to some sentimentality or just some kind of feeling, but it really is this robust, if you will, enduring sense of that God's love has so affected my life that it now begins to affect the way that I live. His favorite definition of the Christian life was out of that Galatians passage, chapter 5, verse 6, that says, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but faith working through love. And, and so that, that idea of this transformational kind of understanding of it, and I think it's, it's an area that we have to recover. Um, you, we've all talked about this together at different times, that, that love has lost so much of a real meaning in our culture. Uh, that it has to be rehabilitated. Um, and I think that's where Ken Collins and others have commented that Wesley's uh, theology was a theology of holy love. I've sort of created a, a little maybe an, uh, way of thinking about it that I would say that that Wesley's preaching and teaching, the, the growth piece on it, in my judgment, was that he knew that God's holy love would never give up on people. It's inexhaustible. That God's holy love would never give out on people. You can't frustrate God to the point where he quits loving you. But the small groups and the and the life of discipleship was the idea that God's holy love will never give in to you. That, that it is this robust approach to say, God's love wants you to grow, wants you to mature, wants you to, to be of, of a, a, a Christ-like character. And so it isn't this kind of, you know, we used to say it isn't just kind of some sloppy agape, mm -hmm. <laughs> some kind of sentimentality that, that reduces it to feeling that it really is this holy love that seeks to bring about transformation. So God is saying, okay, Cliff, I'll never give up on you. I'll never give out on you, but I'm not going to give in to you on these things. Uh, there's there's a level of growth and maturity. But again, this still comes back to Wesley's knowledge that you can't love God till you are convinced he loves you. That once I'm convinced he loves me, and that's what happened to him, that my my will is then conformed to his to say, I'll trust you. I'll look to you because I know you love me. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the things that's been in my mind through this as we were talking about Wesley and maybe ask you guys a question. There may not be much to add to this, but I think it's probably uh, likely that someone listening to this podcast may find themselves in a situation and say, you know what? I identify with John Wesley before Aldersgate, uh, that I am pursuing God. And I, I know in my head that God loves me. 
but my heart has yet to really realize that. And I guess uh, if there's anything you might add to that, Cliff and, and Cole, what would you answer someone who said, look, I just uh, I, I identify with Wesley before that time. I know this in my head. How do I get this to my heart? Well, you know, that's my story. Um, I don't want to make my story everybody's story. But I can tell you this. Um, I pastored a church in Houston years ago. I taught at a Christian university here in town. And uh, at the age of uh, 49, I had gone to a conference in Chicago and to come back to a friend of mine's um, church to meet with him and his staff. And this was October 22nd, 2003. This was 20 years ago. I'm, 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 I'm in ministry for years. And I went to that prayer meeting with his staff. And as we prayed, um, he, he began to pray for me and just began to pray over me. Isaiah 53. Hmm. Surely he has borne our sins, our sorrows, the chastisement of our peace upon him. And I can just tell you this, for the first time in my life, at the age of 49, master's degree, doctorate, been in ministry. For the first time in my life, I I sensed, not as a feeling, but as a certainty, I heard three words in my heart. He for me. And I knew that Jesus died for me. Hmm. The first time in my entire life. It's embarrassing in one sense. I was teaching, preaching, you name it. Somehow, through all of my discipline and effort and journey, God was still having to get through to my heart. And that date comes up in my calendar every month on the 22nd that mm. I remember. Because, Cole, when you said what you did earlier, that, that it had to get to that point that it was for me. Those words rattle me every time I hear them. For me. So I would just tell anybody that's listening to this podcast, I don't know how that happened for so long for me. I, I continued to believe God's word. And I continued to teach God's word. And I continued to hang on to Jesus. And I, I'm, I'm often hesitant to talk about it. Because if I would hear somebody say this right now, you know, 30 years ago, I would have said, well, why not me? Hmm. So I, I don't want to add to people's pain. But I can tell you this. If a person's like that, the lifeline that kept me together all the time, all the time, all the time before this was studying, reading, and believing God's word. Hmm. If it had not been for the Bible, I couldn't have held on. The scriptures held me. John 6, 37, all the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. That's also, by the way, John Bunyan's life verse. So I would say to anyone that 
feels that way like happened to me. Devour God's word. Keep believing God's word. Keep reading God's word. And God will do the work on his time. Yeah. Well, yeah, Cliff, I, I love that you shared that story because it's so central to revival and awakening mm. is people who all of a sudden, like you said, you sometimes can't even explain exactly what the mechanism was. Of course, we know it's God by his spirit, but there it was a prayer for Wesley. It was the words of scripture. Whitfield has a very similar thing happen in his life, and God brings people to himself out of a flat and maybe work-spaced or just distant relationship with him to a living, vibrant relationship. And uh, Edwards didn't have a similar experience in his own life, but Edwards in a lot of ways is the is the chronicler of the Great Awakening. Of course, he's the great genius writer of the Great Awakening in some ways as well, but he's he's writing to try to explain revival and the great awakening and how to how to decide if it's a true act of the spirit of god or not and in the third week of this podcast series we'll talk about edward's sermon called a divine and supernatural light that is this phenomenon that that god mm -hmm. in a way that isn't against our reason in our minds but in a way that utilizes our minds infuses a love and um a value of his beauty and his blessedness in us that is true conversion. And I think uh, whether it's Wesley's story or your story or many, many numbers of stories, that's what we pray God would do in revival and in awakening. One of the books I would recommend to people, George Marsden wrote a, a short biography of Edwards. He also has a very long biography of Edwards, but I would recommend the short biography of Edwards. And at the very end, Cliff, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thought on this. At the end, he says, the Great Awakening was like an American Revolution before the American Revolution. And in a lot of ways, there wouldn't have been an American Revolution without the Great Awakening. And he says, and if we put it this way, Edwards is probably most like Thomas Jefferson, a little bit distant, brilliant, a writer, an orchestrator. George Whitfield is George Washington out in the field winning the victory. Who do you think John Wesley is? He doesn't mention him, but it got me thinking, if we're going to put our trio together, hmm. who, who who would John Wesley be? Hmm. That would that would be interesting. Maybe uh, Alexander Hamilton writing the Federalist Papers. That's what oh, I yeah. thought. That, that was that, what I you, thought. Yeah. Worthy of a Broadway musical, if we're honest. The yeah. Wesley musical would be great, I think. That's right. The Wesley musical. <laughs> Charles would have to write the score, but yeah, that, that, that's a, that, well, that's a creative way to think about these guys and a creative, mm -hmm. a creative way to think about uh, Whitfield and if you will, Edwards, because wow, were they influential in this country and their preaching and leading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that was a great way to conceptualize this and uh, <laughs> captures a little bit of the differences and the personalities at play, but that, but that movements like this involve a lot of different people, just like the American revolution did. And so it's my hope that in this first installment, people get a glimpse of this holy love and the story of John Wesley. Mm -hmm. And then as we move into Whitfield and Edwards, uh, get an even fuller picture of the way God uses people to bring about awakening and revival. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. 
Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.